Fly Fishing Internet Radio, your source for learning more about fly fishing in cold water, warm water, and salt water. Hello, I'm Roger Maves, your host for tonight's show. On this broadcast, we'll be featuring Denny Rickards, and he'll be answering your questions on strategies and techniques for still waters. This show will be 90 minutes in length, and we are broadcasting live over the Internet. If you'd like to ask Denny a question, just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and use the Q&A text box to send us your question. We'll receive your question immediately, and we'll try to answer as many of them as possible on the show tonight. And while you're there, make sure you sign up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. You'll see a form in the right column of our website to sign up. Just fill in your name, email address, and we'll let you know when the next live show will be. This broadcast is being recorded and will be available for playback on our website about 48 hours after the show ends. You can also find it on any of the podcast distribution sites like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. So if you have to leave early, you can return to our website or any of the podcast platforms at your convenience and listen to the recording at any time. If you're out and about on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter, we'd sure appreciate it if you'd share our podcast. And when you do, use the hashtag AskAboutFlyFishing, as well as fly fishing, of course. And if you have a moment, do it right now. We have a couple links on our homepage there. We can share the show. So we'd surely appreciate it. The content of this broadcast is copyrighted as the property of the Knowledge Group, Inc. Doing Businesses Ask About Fly Fishing. When we return, we'll be talking with Denny Rickards about strategies and techniques for still waters. Douglas Outdoors is a manufacturer of premium quality fly rods, raising the expectations that anglers should expect in componentry, design, engineering, craftsmanship, and in turn performance. Led by head rod designer Fred Kuntui, Douglas has achieved award-winning rods featuring eye-opening strength-to-weight ratios and dialed-in technique-specific actions and tapers that cater to a host of different species. Douglas Outdoors has a truly deep lineup of rods ranging from 12 weights for monster tarpon to two weights for tiny brook trout and everything in between. Check them out at douglasoutdoors.com. Again, that's douglasoutdoors.com. Before we introduce Denny, we'd like to let you know about the great prizes we have to give away tonight. For our drawing tonight, we'll be giving away a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International and a one-year subscription to the Fly Fishing and Tying Journal. So you have two chances to win tonight in our drawing. Now, if you haven't registered yet for the drawing, you can do so now. Just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and look for the link under Denny's section that says click here to register for our drawing. Click on that link and fill out the form, and we'll announce the winners at the end of the show. We'll also be giving away a dozen of Denny's favorite still water flies, and uh, courtesy of, of Denny himself, of course. And here's how you can win. You must be the first person to answer the question we ask at the end of the show. The question will be about something Denny and I talk about during the show, and just submit your answer along with your name and location using that text box on our homepage. It's the same uh, box that you can use during the show to ask questions. So listen closely, take notes, pay attention, type fast, and maybe you'll win those uh, dozen of Denny's favorite still water flies. Our guest tonight is Denny Rickards. Denny has had an opportunity to fish and guide anglers over some of the most challenging trophy trout waters in the western United States over the past 30 years. His simplistic approach and techniques on presentation have accounted for cutthroats to 15 pounds, rainbows in excess of 16 pounds, and browns over 20 pounds. Then he spends over 250 days a year doing what he loves best, guiding, riding, uh, tying flies, conducting fly fishing, 
schools and field testing and developing fly fishing and manufacturers products. Uh, Denny guides full time on the upper Klamath Lake and uh, when Denny isn't fishing or guiding he spends many hours studying trout behavior, their habitat, and the various insects found within their environment. As a professional fly tire, Denny's suggestive patterns have appeared in various outdoor magazines and are on display at Kushner's uh, Fly Fishing Museum in Florence, Oregon. Based on past reviews, his books and companion videos are now considered the Bibles for fly fishing lakes. Denny's knowledge and ability to teach others are a prerequisite to establishing his fly fishing schools, clinics, which have become a priority for anglers seeking the ultimate form, their still water angling experiences. Uh, Denny, welcome back to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. Thank you, Roger. I appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, well, we've done, this will be uh, number four, uh, the fourth time you've been on the show. So um, you're, you're becoming, well, you are, <laughs> one of my uh, longstanding guests over the years. I really appreciate you taking your time again. But it always seems you're coming up and you're learning more stuff. <laughs> I mean, what uh, can you learn more than you've already learned? Uh, but it seems so, right? Well, you know, Roger, with the amount of time that I spend on the water, this is, what, my 56th year of fishing lake with a fly. And when I started, I'm like a lot of the guys out there in the audience. I didn't have a clue what I was doing. It just takes time. And I think a lot of the problems that a lot of guys have on trying to understand and unravel the mysteries on still waters because they don't have an opportunity to spend the amount of time that I do. So, yeah, uh, I still get in 175, 200 days a year, uh, and that's what I do. I'm out there. It's not so much about catching fish. My focus more now is what do, what is Mother Nature doing, I should say, in terms of how it affects the trout's feeding behavior. And sometime during this uh, hour and a half, we're going to get into that because guys really need to know because what Mother Nature is doing is going to affect where you find fish and how far down they are. And those are two things you can't guess. You can do a trial and error approach to it, but you're going to spend a lot of time making a lot of casts that aren't going to be very productive. Yeah, and in fact, when we were talking a few weeks ago, when we were setting up the show, I had asked you about situation on the lake just down the hill from me here where uh, a guy caught a trout, and um, it was full of uh, snails. Mm -hmm. and that seemed odd to me. Seemed odd to him. And after our, after you gave me a like twenty twenty uh, minute tutorial on that, <laughs> I learned all about how Mother Nature can uh, play an effect and uh, affect their eating habits. And you know, that's something that I didn't even know there were snails in there. You know, much less that they were eating them. Well, so, it depends uh, on but, the habitat uh, of the particular lake, Roger. Right, right. Not all yeah, lakes but have I snails. Right, right. Um, so that was that was real enlightening to me about you know what's really going on in there. Mm -hmm. So, um, but we have a ton of questions tonight. They just poured in, um, and uh, that's great. I, I love to have our listeners uh, be asking questions. And the first area that comes up, I've kind of organized this in the finding fish, uh, talking about the flies, and then strategies and tactics. Mm -hmm. um, but, um, you know, always the, the questions that come up are about finding fish. And there's a question from Phil McCartney here. He says, uh, please discuss how you decide where in the water column you believe the trout will be 
and when there is no apparent surface activity. Is the water temperature the main indicator, or are there several important factors to consider? He says, I've never used electronics to find fish, but I have fish lakes where the fish completely evaded my efforts to figure out where they were. My guess is that they left the water after evolving legs and lungs. <laughs> so uh, let's start there. Well, I, let me just uh, I'm going to put it this way as though let's just pretend for a second that I'm going to do a clinic, and these are some of the things that I need to make sure that guys understand. And here's how simple it is when it comes, and it's not really simple, but for me it's gotten pretty easy. When you get to a lake, whether it's one you know or it's a new lake that you haven't fished before, where you're going to find the fish and how deep they are is going to be under Mother Nature's control, not ours. So what I'm referring to when you get to the lake is it a cloudy day or is it a clear day? Is the water on the warm side? Is it on the cold side? Is it clear? Is it off color? These are just some of the factors that dictate where your fish will be, and the factors and the conditions that we're referring to are going to change hourly and daily. So when I get to a lake, here's how simple I've made it. And to preface that, over the years, the 50-some years I've been fishing lake with a fly, Roger, I've probably fished close to 6,000 lakes around the world, inside our country and outside, and no two are the same. Different habitats, different depths, uh, configuration. They're in different countries or different altitudes. All those things are different, so there's no two lakes the same. But the one thing that I've found on almost every lake that i fished, without exception, is where fish feed and that's where you guys out there need to be spending your time i think we put way way too much emphasis and that's not really a good way of putting it but we're more concerned as everybody is on what fly you're going to fish because we're used to trying to match the hatch as we do when we're fishing streams and rivers but i'm going to get in and i'm going to cover it right now when i get to a lake I look at the conditions because that's what's going to move your fish up and down and from one location to the other. But I usually start my day before the sun is up. And I do that for a reason. I'll explain it in just a minute. Where I'm going to go, I'm going to fish the shoreline edge. What most guys, and I say most because I'm, I'm referring to when I'm giving clinics and giving talks and listening to questions from guys, they don't understand fully about how to approach in, in the different forms of presentation. We'll talk, we'll get into that too, but when a trout wants to eat, he's going to be found along shoreline edges. That's number one for me. So when I start my day, I'm going to do it before the sun is up, if possible, unless I know in advance that the lake doesn't fish well in the morning, and some don't, but most of the time they do. So I'm going to be on the water, and I'm going to be fishing in shallow water from one to four feet. I'm going to be in a pontoon boat, and I'm going to be casting into the shore. You don't want to be on the shore casting out. You want to be out casting in. You only reach 5% of the fish if you're from shore, but when you're in a boat, you can reach 100% of them. The important thing to understand, the reason that there's fish on the shoreline, and this is daily. This is what I do every single day when I start my day. If I'm going out and uh, the time is right, I'm going to be there before the sun hits the water. might be light enough to see what you're doing, but before the sun hits the water. Big fish, and I'm talking about those that are 20 and up, all the way to 30 and plus, they will not enter shallow water unless it's safe. So the trout's going to use the cover of darkness and wind ripple to come in there. 
if they don't have that, they're not going there. A big fish and his feeding habits, he's not going to subject himself to predation in shallow water because when they're in there, they're going to be hunting, looking for food. So one of the things you guys got to remember is on a still water environment, a feeding fish is always moving. He's never stationary. And I know a lot of the guys out there, the fish indicators, they'll fish one spot. But nevertheless, a hunting fish, and these are the big fish. You're not going to be hooking any little guys. These are the big fish. And when they're hunting, they're going to be moving parallel to shore. So that's the first spot I'm going to go to, and I'm going to present my fly in a manner I'm going to get as close to the shoreline edge as possible. When I do that, I usually start my day with a seal bugger, a leech, or a minnow imitation. What brings a big fish into shallow water for the most part are minnows because of the high protein value. That doesn't mean that they won't take small stuff if you guys are throwing it at them, but that's what they're looking for. They're looking for a mouthful. So any of those three flies, they're all what we refer to as a suggestive fly. They don't imitate any one particular food source, but they could imitate a number of food sources. So when a fish sees it, here's the best part of this. When you guys cast into a shoreline edge and that fish sees your fly, the takes are instant. If he's there and he sees your fly and you don't, announce its arrival by a bad cast or splashy cast, whatever it might be, they're going to take, and they're going to take instantly. They don't saunter up to it and look at the size and the color and all that. Uh-uh. They're going to take immediately. You may only hook three or four in a given morning. You might spend a couple hours doing it, but they're all going to be big fish. Over the years, Roger got all the big fish that I've taken, I would say probably 75% are taken from that first light up till about 9, 10 o'clock in the morning because that's when those big fish are going to hunt. There's a time frame to this. Uh, in other words, when the sun gets higher and they lose their cover, they're going to retreat and they're going to move into deeper water. That doesn't mean they're through feeding. It just means it's not acceptable to them to be exposed to predators. So their way of adjusting to that is to move off deeper, not out in the middle of the lake, but usually out in that 8 to 10, 12-foot depths because a fish on a lake is never far from where the food is located. And the reason all these fish are coming in, because every fly that we have on our fly box, I don't care what you call it, mayfly, caddis, damsel, mid, scud, minnow imitation, whatever it is, all of those food sources are found on the shoreline edge because that's where the protoplankton and zooplankton in a lake is located. That means food cover and remember this shoreline edges are always the first place to warm and they're also the first place that cools down so that's more important spring and fall so let me just add this one other note and we'll move on to another question but when it's springtime and several of the questions that uh, were sent in guys were asking about water temperature everything that a fish does everything when he feeds what he feeds on the depth that he holds where you will find him when he spawns, it's all about water temperature. So you guys, if you don't have a water thermometer or one in your depth finder or whatever, you need to get one because if the water is below 40 degrees, you're going to find it very, very difficult to get a fish to come to a cast and retrieve or a troll fly. They aren't going to do it. Once in a while you might hook one, but I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, uh, you know, you had said uh, early morning, and I assume that kind of uh, applies to uh, dusk as well when the, the larger sure. fish come in. Early morning, late evening, right. Yeah. 
Yeah. Now, if you don't or can't use a flow tube or, you know, flotation device of some sort, mm -hmm. uh, how – and it's been effective for me, but uh, – and maybe we I don't have access to all the fish you're talking about, but uh, is it effective to work your way up the shoreline and just work that section from the shoreline out that you're yes. talking about? Yes. What okay. I do on that case, Roger, when I get in the water – I'm usually, and this is going to probably surprise a lot of you guys, uh, if I went back 20 years, and I'll average somewhere between five to 700 fish a year over four pounds because on my home lake here, that's easy to do. But as I travel around the country, of all those fish going back 20 years, not one, not a single trout have I caught in depths greater than eight feet. Fish feed shallow. They rest deep but they feed shallow, and we need to get into that a little more a little later. But when I'm on the okay. water, what I'll do is I'll turn my pontoon boat. One of the questions asked is what's the best boat. A float tube is okay, but it's not as safe as a pontoon boat. But if you guys are out there using a pram or a canoe or a boat with a motor on the back, that's fine until the wind blows. And when the wind blows, what are you going to do? Most guys will put an anchor down, which I don't want to do because then you mm -hmm. retard your ability to move around on the lake. And one of the things that I've found over the years fishing myself or guiding people is the guy who covers water always outfishes the guy who sits in one spot. I know indicator fishing. I know how that's done, too. It's not my preferred way, but a lot of guys use it, and it is effective. So when you're on a lake, cast into the shoreline, and here's a really important point to make. Slowly kick moving parallel to shore. Don't face the shore. Otherwise, if you kick in a pontoon or a belly boat, you're moving away from your target. Move parallel to the shore so your distance in, whatever that might be, 30, 40, 50 feet. When you make the retrieve, don't bring it out more than five to six feet. A fish that sees your fly, if he doesn't take it instantly, he may follow it. And a fish following your fly never comes back. You will find they don't. When they follow it, they don't take it. They just follow. And they will not leave their lane where they're cruising to come out to you. So after four or five feet of retrieve, pick up and recast. But move along the shoreline and cover water. Kick very slowly. But in answer to your question, Roger, that's what I do. I cover the shoreline. It might be 100 yards. might be half that. When I get through, I'll come back, maybe trawl back out in deeper water to see if there's fish feeding out there. But... I'll uh, find other spots, and that's what I do. I'm going to jump way ahead to a question that I had under strategies and tactics, just because mm -hmm. it kind of aligns with what you just said about a follow. But um, D.C. Johnson in Olympia, Washington, asks, he says, what is the best way to get fish to come back at a fly after it's swirled at your fly? So is a swirl take the same as a follow, or is that different? <laughs> Good question. I'll answer it this way. 40 years ago, maybe 35, 40 years ago, fishing Upper Klamath here in Oregon, I was cruising up the channels. I have an electric motor in front, and I was sitting in the seat using my foot to control the speed and the angle that I was moving up these channels. And I made a cast over along the shoreline edge, and I saw this big swirl. Well, what would you do? Everybody wants to put that cast right back in there, and I did that, and I've done it for over 30 years, Roger. I have yet to catch a fish in the second cast. They mm. don't come back. They may follow. Even when you're trolling, a fish following your fly isn't going to take it by following it. He'll follow it and then break off. 
So when you're doing that, what I do, and I've learned not to do that, is I'll, I'll move the fly maybe five, six feet ahead, and I'll cover it, but I know where that spot is, and I'll come back to it and try again a little later. But that once they've exposed themselves and given away where they're at, call it an instinctive thing with them. They don't come back. Interesting. Very interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I know when I'm fish, if I see a swirl or a take, I usually try to, you know, go left or right because I figure that that fish is moving. He's not just sitting under that spot someplace. Well, you got to uh, remember so, one yeah. of the things, Roger, that I think is important that we point out to the listeners is that when you're covering a shoreline edge, if there's sufficient cover, that could be weed beds, down trees, rocks, logs, anything that a fish can use for his security or to hide in, he will take residents in there, not to live there, but he will go into those spots and hold when the sun is high. They don't do that early in the morning. They leave those locations, whether it's out from deep water into shallow or from wherever they are hiding along shoreline, and they're going to cruise. When the sun gets high enough, they'll go back in there. So a fish that's hunting is is actually looking for food, so he's moving. When they go in there, they need cover so they can ambush something that comes by. So as you go up, if you're fishing a short line and it's after 8, 9 o'clock, there could be fish there, but it's not going to be something that's moving, cruising. He's hidden in there, and you can cast in there, and a lot of times you can get him to take. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We've got um, several questions here about using electronic sonar, mm-hmm. fish finders, that kind of thing. Um, and how the you know what's the best one to use on a float tube or kick boat, and uh, and how to use those. Um, do you use fish finders at all? I have First one that was mine is God. It's got to be at least 15 years old. It was a little buddy. Uh, this is what they call. It. They don't make it anymore. But the company that made that fish finder does have a, a newer model now. And I'd say any fly shop that carries those type of electronics, you can go in and get one for a float tube or a belly boat. They'll just, they're straps that you can use or things. I think you can get them from Cabela's, uh, little round tubes. You can go get a PCV pipe and put a cloth thing to attach it to the side of your boat, and the finer goes in there. But got to remember, when you turn it on, what you're really looking at when you turn that on, if you're going to see fish in the bottom, just about in a lake relative to the time of day, you'll always find fish in the bottom. Those are not fish that are eating, and that's not the fish you're going to catch. When you move along, most of them have uh, temperature gauges in there, and you can get your water temperature. Mine happens to have what they call a side finder. So when I'm cruising the shoreline and it shows a fish in there, it'll tell me how far away it is. And sometimes it's not a trout. It could be uh, another species of fish, or it could be a large minnow or chub or something like that. But most of the time it's trout if, if it's the right time of day. But depth finders are good. Once you know the lake, I rarely use mine when I know the depths and and what's going on out there other than to check on water temperature. So not a bad tool to have, especially if you're on a lake that you don't know and you haven't fished there before. I kind of imagine uh, it doesn't sound like you use one very often. (laughs) I do on new water. uh, Oh, on new water. Okay, okay. Do you use that to find structure as well? We had a question about that. And it'll show you structure, and that's important because – it's not important early in the day. You've got to remember that when a fish wants to feed, when he picks an area to feed on whatever lake you're on, and it makes no difference which lake that is, even ones that you're fishing all the time, when a fish enters shallow water, because that's where the food's going to be concentrated, 
he goes in there and what he looks for in the way of structure, and let's break that out, brown trout, brook trout, tigers, those species of trout are structure huggers. Rainbows, cutthroats, you'll find them in there as well, but you'll find those fish more out in open water in midday time frames. So one of the questions I remember hearing, too, was uh, what's the best time to go after these fish? And to me, it's early and late in shallow water, but there's another area on a lake that we haven't discussed yet. It'll come up, and I'll bring it up uh, if we don't, uh, we don't talk about it in one of the questions, but that's when uh, fish are feeding on aquatic insects, and you've got to change the whole game. Yeah, in fact, uh, Andy Cordova has a good question here, which we'll, we'll attack that here after our, our break here. So give me just uh, 30 seconds here, Denny, and uh, we'll be right back and talk more about finding these, uh, these trout and lakes. So hang tight. Okay. There are not many places in the world where you can fly fish for permit, tarpon, bonefish, and snook, all within a few miles of each other, but you can in Belize. When you fish with Charlie Leslie Fly Fishing, you're on a private island and are only minutes away from some of the finest fly fishing in Belize. You'll start out from Placencia and take just a 30-minute boat ride to your lodging on the island. Once you're there, you'll be fishing lagoons full of tarpon and targeting permit on the flats of Permit Alley. Bonefish and snook are ready for your cast as well. Charlie Leslie, with over 50 years of experience in the waters of Belize, his son Marlon Leslie, and their other hand-picked guides know the local waters like no others. Book your next Belize adventure now with Charlie Leslie Fly Fishing. Visit charlielesleyflyfishing.com. Again, that's charlielesleyflyfishing.com or call 303-430-4634. That's 303-430-4634. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We're talking with Denny Rickards about strategies and techniques for still waters. If you'd like to ask Denny a question, just go to our homepage, fill out that form, send it in, and we'll try to get it answered on tonight's show. So, Denny, I always ask my guests what's going on in your fly fishing world. Please share you know, a bit about your business. Give us your website. Tell us what you're doing up there. Well, I, as I mentioned earlier, yeah, I'm watching it snow right now here in Oregon. We're having oh, really? a very, <laughs> very light winter so far, and that's going to affect a lot of the reservoirs, not the natural lakes so much, but the reservoirs. So this time of year, I'm doing what a lot of other guys are doing. Other than handling the business part of the day, I'm tying flies. I'm I'm writing articles for magazines. I'm thinking, what when I'm given a clinic, what do I need to do to make it better? What do guys really lack in the way of unraveling the mysteries on a lake? And most of the guys that I see, Roger, uh, are not, in all honesty, they're not real skilled at fishing still water because they don't spend the time that they need in order to learn it. So maybe this is our opportunity to shed some of the light on what works in over the 50-some years that I've been doing this, uh, I've just unraveled a lot of the mysteries for myself as to what was once was a, a problem in terms of getting fish to take. Uh, now I don't, I don't worry about numbers when I get out there. My main thing is I'm after those big guys, and I have to understand the relationship between Mother Nature, her whims on how they affect the trout's feeding behavior, and as we talked earlier, where the trout are going to go and when they're going to be there, and I can unravel some of this uh, as we go along, but uh, sure. that's just basically well, sure. what I do with my day. 
Yeah, well, uh, share your website with us because uh, you're selling flies there and, and materials and so forth. That sure, well, anybody can it. Google my name and it'll take them there, but it's flyfishingstillwaters.com. And I just wanted to point out this because we had so many questions that I was reading over that if I don't get to anybody's particular question, I encourage you guys out there, please pick up the phone, call me, or email me. My email address is d. G is in Gale. My last name, Rickards, R-I-C-K-A-R-D-S. Then the number 9 at gmail.com, or you can call me at 541-381-2218. It's your dime, but my time's free, and I'll be glad to get into whatever questions you guys have got so that we can spend some time and see if we can fix the problems. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no better offer than that. So uh, there you go, folks. Uh, open season on Denny Rickards <laughs> for information. <laughs> um, Andy Cordova in Reno, Nevada, um, was asking, he says, my problem is finding trout in lakes. Now, we already discussed the early morning, late evening where things mm -hmm. are at. But he says, you know, what happens in between? And he says, my gut tells me you should start shallow and go deeper which is kind of what you've just suggested. But what do you do between those two prime times of day uh, to find fish? Well, his question, I was, I'm looking at it right now. And for Andy, uh, here's I'm going to try to make this as simple as I can. You're right on. Trout are going to be in shallow water, and they're going to be in there early. And when they leave, they leave because they lose their cover of darkness or wind ripple. If they don't have one or the other, they aren't going to stay in there. And... They may be going deeper, but I'm not going deeper. I just learned, and somewhere along the line here, <laughs> Roger, i got to tell them an experience that I had on Hyde Lake, which is one of the lakes that I guide here in Oregon. What I learned on this day about eight years ago changed my entire outlook about trout feeding behavior and what they do. And when you guys are out there thinking, well, if you're just making a cast and nothing happens, I'll just tell you this. The reason nothing happens is because there was no fish there to see your fly. That's probably the answer <laughs> 75 to 80% of the time. So where do fish go? Yeah, they may retreat, but here's one thing that they don't do. They aren't going to travel 50, 100, 100 yards or whatever out to a big deep hole in the middle of the lake that might be 20 feet deep. Why would a fish leave where the food is and spend all that energy and go all the way out there and then have to spend all that energy and come back in? They don't do that. They go right underneath where you guys are for the most part. So when I'm on a lake, I use my, if I don't have my depth finder, I'll take my rod and stick it down. And if I hit the depth of eight feet or less, that's where I'm staying. And I'm going to stay as I move along the shoreline edge around the lake because as the time wears on, you're going to start seeing fish coming in, and they'll do it if there's wind ripple or insect hatches will bring them in closer. But could be that they'll be out in deeper water. But anyway, uh, his question, yes, the fish will go deep. But this is going to go sideways for a lot of you guys based on what you believe. Here's my take on it. Fish that are deeper than eight feet are not feeding. There's no food on the bottom where the sun cannot reach to cause photosynthesis or germination, which is plant life. They may rest there, and they always go to a depth where the oxygen temperature to their liking. If it's a deep lake, high elevation lake, that may be 10 feet down and 20 feet of water. It could be 20 feet down and 40 feet of water. But when they eat, they always go to the same two places, shoreline edge 
early and late, or if there's wind ripple, they could go in there in midday, or they're going to be in the top two feet. Yes, top two feet. And hmm. when you're ready, Roger, I'm gonna, I want to tell these guys a story when I was on Hyde Lake, what I was doing and what I learned, and boy, what an eye-opener it was for me. They can only envision what I'm going to tell them, but it's going to change the Go way I fish lakes. <laughs> Go okay. for it. <laughs> All right. This was, about, this was about six, seven years, eight years ago. I was testing some lines that I designed for the Cortland Line Company. They were sink tip lines. And I always ask this question when I'm giving seminars or clinics and things. I said, you guys, when you have a sink tip line, that means most of the line is a floater and the tip sinks. So I had a buddy of mine that was out there, and I, we prearranged what we are going to do. I was on the shoreline. I took a garden hose, and I laid up on the shore, and that was my breathing apparatus. Put on a mask, and I went out to about six-foot depths. As the water went down, it was a gin-clear uh, lake I could see all the way out. He was in a pontoon boat going out probably 50, 60 feet from me at about 12 feet of water. I was looking at where the fish were stationed. We looked at the water temperature before we went out. The water temperature on the surface was pushing 70 degrees, which you would think would put the fish on the bottom. Well, there were fish on the bottom. I'm in six feet of water, and I'm looking at fish out in front of me, six, seven feet away, laying on the bottom. Some of them were cruising oh, within arm's length of me, just moving along in front of me. But what the interesting part was is we had him out there. I told him, I want you to make 10 casts. And use a 10-second count. When the fly hits, count 10. The tip line, that sink tip line that we were testing was 10 feet long, and it was a type 2, which means it sinks 2 feet in 10 seconds. Intermediate lines sink 1 foot in 10. And if it's a 3, 4, 5, the number of the line corresponds to the sink rate of the tip. So as he would cast, I'm watching these fish. But what I was waiting to see is what the fish did when his fly entered the water, Roger, if he kept the fly in a 10 or 20 second count, with that line he was no deeper than four feet. There were fish in the two to four foot range. There were more down at six, eight feet, and there were some on the bottom and 12 feet. Here's what I discovered in watching these fish. As he retrieved the fly, fish in the top two feet would go back and forth, kind of anxious, uh, zipping back and forth. Some would just follow it. Some of them I could see strike it. Uh, he hooked a couple while he was doing that. What was interesting is what the fish that were at six feet and deeper down to 12 were doing. If you guys haven't done this, this is an eye-opener. They weren't doing anything. They weren't moving. They were stationary. Now, when you guys go out and put a fly down deeper than six feet with water temperatures that warm, they may be down there because of the oxygen levels. But if a fish isn't moving, there's your telltale sign. And I use this uh, type of approach every single day I'm on a lake. If the trout isn't moving, he's not hunting. So food is not a factor. Can you get him to hit? Yes. But it's going to be a struggle because you have to get the fly in front of him. So we'll get into that. It's another thing that we need to talk about a little bit later as to why and what you need to do when fish are deep and how to get them to take. But when they're feeding, just remember they're in the top two feet, maybe three or four relative to water temperature and time of day. 
but it was interesting to see how they reacted to a sink tip line. Now, I'm going to throw this one in because fly lines, we haven't even discussed it yet, Roger, but it is the most important part of your presentation process is the line you use because the key, the key guys to catching fish in still water, I don't care where the lake is, I don't care what time you're there, time of day, time of year, the key is the depth that you run your fly. Fish will be in the feeding zone. They're going to be in the top two, three feet or shoreline edges. If they're deeper than that and the deeper you have to go to locate them, the tougher it is to, to get them to take. You can get them to take, but it's not easy. You've got to get the fly in front of him. If you make a long cast with a sinking line, a fast sinking line, to get the fly in front of him means you've got to line him. If he's facing away from you and you don't know that because you can't see him, what if he's reversed? What if he's... Uh, uh, his tail is toward you. All right, line has to go over him to get the fly to come to him. If he's facing you, you're either going to line him, which puts the, line, the fly in line behind him, you're lining him again. If you pull up behind him, he doesn't see it. So the only advantage you have, and it can be done, guys do it all the time, catching fish that are deep, but they don't catch a lot of them. They spend way too much time cast and retrieving, and I learned that a long time ago, so I don't spend time doing it. I don't have any problem catching fish in the top two, three feet, or along shoreline edges. So anyway, when we were out on that lake, and here's a, a key thing about a sink tip line, guys. Since the floating portion is there, and let's just use an example of a type two. So if you go into a fly shop and they're selling, they want to sell you a sink tip line, there's nothing wrong with the line. It may be the best line for still water, and here's why. When the tip sinks with the fly, if it's a type two, it's going to sink two feet in 10 seconds. That means if you count 10, you're going to be down two feet. If you count 20, you're down four. If you go 30, you're down six. When you begin to retrieve, my question for every one of you guys out there is which way does the fly go? And 99% of the time, the answer is you're pulling the fly up. No, you're not. And this is what I learned that the first time I was underneath the water watching these fish in the lines. When you pull and the line is down on an angle, it's not parallel, it's not straight down, it's that 45 in between. When you pull on the floating portion and retrieve it toward you, the line drags and comes across, and which means it's moving parallel in the water. Why the manufacturers haven't figured this out, I don't have a clue. Most guys haven't figured it out because they don't go underneath the water to see what the line's doing. You can do it in a swimming pool, you can see it. So that's what's happening, and that means if fish are holding at 10 feet and 12 feet of water and you want to get the fly to them, most guys will use a fast sinking line. That's great once you get it down to the fish, but how do you stop the descent? You can't. It's going to keep going. So every time you pause between pulls, fly and line are going to go deeper. You're going to hang moss. You're going to hang weeds. You're going to hang rocks, some kind of structure sooner or later, and you're going to get tired of pulling that off your fly, and pretty soon you'll stop doing it. You might catch the occasional fish, and a good part of it is that usually they're all big. You don't get little fish down there, but it's it's a tough way to go. And the only time it's really an advantage to use a sink tip line if you're going to go deep is where there's gravel on the bottom because then you won't hang. So anyway, that was yeah, the main it, thing. Yeah, it kind of reminds what, what you just said. There's going to be a sweet zone in there somewhere. It's kind of like when you're drifting a river. Mm -hmm. uh, you don't Your drift isn't good the whole way through. You get, you know several feet of good drift and then it's it's either going down or it's coming back up right Correct. so it sounds similar with uh, stillwater fishing in that you're pulling this in but there's only that one sweet spot you're going to you know 
where you may get the, the take, but the rest of the time you're going down or up. <laughs> right? Well, let me uh, – Roger, let's let's move into the other area where fish feed because it's, it's important sure. now that we get into that, and then after that we'll get into yeah. the pupa form of insects. But, you guys, the other spot you need to figure out on the lake – when I tell you the top two feet, and I'm going to show you some variations to this particular instance, is when fish begin to, to show rises on the surface. When you see a rise on a lake, one, you already know he's on aquatic insects. When I see that, the fly line that I'm using, to do a shoreline edge, you can use an intermediate line. Or I designed a seven-foot intermediate sink tip line that I sell to guys for this particular uh, way of fishing up on top. One of the questions I remember reading in there was, how do we fish subsurface? Uh, what lines and flies would I use? Here's what I do, guys. When I see fish making rings, one, that tells me he's either feeding on a mayfly, caddis, damsel, or midge because those are the only four insects that go from the bottom to the top. When they reach the surface... Only the damsel heads to shore, traveling two to three, four inches, whatever, and he heads to shore. The other three hang in the film. So the line that I use for that is a seven-foot intermediate sink tip line. Uh, some of the companies out there make a hover line, but the problem with the hover, it'll hold you in that zone, but the whole line's underneath the water. Some guys will use a floater, and a floater when you're fishing subsurface is not a good idea unless you have a dry and use another fly as a dropper. I don't fish two flies ever. I fish just one. got enough to worry about with the one, let alone two. But it is an effective technique if you're putting a, a dry out there and put a dropper down because you're imitating the pupa. But here's what you need to know. The fish that are making those rings are cruising, and you guys write this down so you don't forget it. They're cruising probably 8 to 10 inches below the surface, sometimes as much as 12, 15 inches, but most of the time it's 8 to 10 inches. That means they're looking up, they don't look down, your fly now cannot go below the depth that they're cruising, because a trout never takes below him. So if he's cruising and they're a foot under, that's how much water you have to fish in. So what line are you going to use? If you choose to do a floating line, they reflect light and leave a shadow. And the worst part about it, if the wind is blowing, got to remember, trout face into a wind when the wind is blowing. If there's insects on top, because they'll be blown across the surface, and the fish will be porpoising. If you're out there and you're sideways to wind, you're casting down wind, which is the worst angle to take, you're going to be lining fish. If you use a floating line where you need to go, is across the wind. Always cast across the wind. A floating line as you cast across it is going to bow. That's going to cause dragon. You're flying. You're not going to do well there either. But if you just have a light ripple, the seven-foot tip, the intermediate part, is the only part that's going to sink, and that's the seven feet. What it does is it maintains your fly in the top two feet throughout the entire length of the retrieve, and that's my go-to line. So what we're talking about is the pupa form of an aquatic insect. Here's some numbers for you guys. Uh, maybe you can check with your own fishing game people and see if they don't correspond with what I'm going to tell you. When I did my last book on presentation, I went to six or seven biologists around the country, and I said, when you guys are out in the field, do you record what you find as far as when you're doing stomach samples and finding out what the trout's eating? And he says, oh, yeah. And I said, do you have that information available? And he says, yeah, what do you want to know? And I said, take out leeches, scuds, anything that's non-aquatic. I want just aquatic insects. 
of those insects, guys, mayfly, caddis, damsel, and midge, we imitate those four insects in three stages. Go in any fly shop, and you'll find these three stages. Larva, pupa, and adult. The adult's on top. That's your dry fly. The larva is found on the bottom. It's the pupa form. And he told me, and when I asked him, I says, what percent in the last study that you did was in larva form? And he says, 10%. And I said, what percent was the adult? He says, 10%. And I said to him, are you telling me that 80% of what a trout eats then is in pupa form? He says, that's right. And he says, Danny, here's what's interesting. No one has ever asked us about that. You're the first guy that's ever asked. And I said, well, how come you guys don't publish this? Too many other things going on. He says, but most of the studies. So I wasn't sure I believed that entirely, Roger. So what I did is I contacted mm -hmm. other biologists. And by golly, I'm getting the same feedback from the same studies. So if a trout is feeding on 80% of what they eat, an aquatic insect is a pupa, all we have to do is learn how to fish the pupa and where to fish it. So I'm going to make it simple for all the guys that are out there. You guys, most of the small flies you have in your fly box, other than a scud, are really pupa imitations. I don't care what you call them, hare's ear, pheasant tail, prince, nymph, I don't care what it is. They're all really pupa imitations. For you guys to be successful on a lake, I don't fish out in open water until I see fish coming up. Usually that means you're going to see rings, and it's usually not too far away from where the weed beds are. That means it's usually going to be in shallow water, 10 feet or less, and that's not really shallow. The depth might be 10 feet, but you will find that once you see them up there, you're going to fish that top two feet. So the pupa form... And this is probably a good time to do it, Rogers. I'm going to tell them what I do and how I do it. You guys, sure. just so you know, for 30 years, I could not catch a fish that was showing when he was feeding on pupa. So how do you know when they're on the adult and on the pupa? If you see a ring and you don't see the fish, he's sucking the adult under. And if you're in doubt, go to where you see the ring and you'll see bubbles in the middle of the ring. That means he's sucking the adult under. When you see the fish porpoise or show his back, then he's on the pupa. Since 80% of what they eat is in pupa form, sometimes trout will move in a group. Half of them are on the pupa and half of them are on the adult. So I pick out those that I see on the, that are showing on the porpoising rises. So I get this line built for me. I've got the right flies, my APM merger, still water nymph, all, the, all these pupa imitations, and I'm placing it out there and I'm pulling the fly really slow, and I was not getting hit. I couldn't figure this out. For 20 years, I would cast a fish, and once in a while I'd catch one halfway back in the retreat, but I couldn't catch him, and I didn't know what I was doing wrong. So I'm thinking, well, maybe I have to increase the speed of the retreat to keep the fly higher, since the insect that I'm imitating is hanging in the film. And you guys, when we're talking a film, Take a piece of paper and set a dry fly on top of the piece of paper. Now take a nymph and touch the underside of the paper. That's how thin a film we're talking about. But the insect has to get through that in order to break the shack and become an adult on top. So here I'm on a lake in Wyoming. Had a great morning fishing a seal bugger with a buddy of mine. And we're looking out there, and I'm looking at my watch, and it was almost 10 o'clock. And I told Garth, the guy I was fishing with, I said, Garth, I'm going over by those weed beds. And he says to me, oh, you're going to go do that pupa thing again, aren't you? I said, yeah, i got to figure this out. I, I can't catch him. It's just a hole in my presentation, and I haven't figured out the answer. But one of these days, I'm going to figure it out. Well, that was my lucky day. 
So we kicked over by the weed bed, so I saw some fish coming up, a few, not many yet, so we're munching on a sandwich. Here's what's interesting. Off to my left lie, there was three, and they were calabatus nymphs in pupa form, hanging in the film, just sitting just below it, about five feet away from me. I'm looking at that, and I said to Garth, I said, look at those insects laying there. And he said, yeah, now we need, and he, and he stopped in mid-sentences. Then he looked to the right. Here come three big rainbow in the 20 to 23, 24-inch class. Two of them break away and go away from us. The other one comes in within three feet of those insects, and he's staring at them, and he stops. I can see his fins. He's four feet in front of me. I got a box seat to this, what was going to happen. What happened? And this was my lucky day, guys. Two more insects came up right next to these other three. One of them was higher than the other. He hits the surface film, tries to get through, and he couldn't get it. So now he's hanging in the film like the other three. But it's the other one. This is where the secret got unlocked. And part of this is what something that Hal Jensen had told me many, many years ago. He says, Denny, remember when you're retrieving and you're imitating pupa, guys, remember this, they never take on the pole. They always take on the paws between the poles. Well, on this day, I hadn't put that to use. I didn't understand what he meant. All right, if I pause, that's what he's saying. They're going to take it. So here's what I did, guys. I made my cast. I could see that because that insect coming up, as he got near the surface, he hits the surface film, doesn't get through, and then he falls back about two to three inches. Then he starts wiggling, comes up, makes a second attempt, hits the film, and doesn't make it again. As he started to drop back down, this big rainbow puts it in gear, comes in and sucks him in and gets the other three or four and moves off. And I looked at Garth and I said, that's it. That's what I've been doing wrong. And Garth says to me, what? I said, you stay right there. I'm going to go try and see if I'm right. So, guys, here's what I learned on how to fish a pupa. You won't find this on the Internet. You won't find it in any book. You won't find it in any magazine articles the guys have written. I haven't found anybody that has really figured this out. And I think this was my lucky day, so I want to share it with you guys. What I did is I made my cast. I see a fish porpoise. I let him two to three feet out in front. When the fly hit, I did nothing. I just let it sink, and I counted to five. I never got to five. The fish picked up the fly and was hauling across the lake. Three casts, three hookups, and I did nothing. So I'm thinking, okay, that's it. So what Hal was telling me when they take on the paws between the poles, what he didn't tell me is what the insect is doing. With you guys, when you cast and you don't do anything, your fly's going to drop. It's going to drop very slowly. The tippet will hold the head of the fly up. The back end by the bend of the hook will drop down after two or three seconds. That's the same position as the natural. Then the whole thing begins to sink. When a fish sees that, if he's been feeding on pupa, you're going to get the hookup. We went from zero success to now it runs 80-85. And the other thing to complete that process, Roger, is if you do this and you count to five and nothing happens, then pull the line toward you on a retrieve between six to eight inches, very slow, and then stop and recount five. I do it usually two. Once in a while, I'll do three sets of a five-second count, five, six, seven seconds, whatever, and then a slight pull, slow. If I haven't hooked a fish after doing that twice or three times, that fish is gone. You can continue retrieving or just pick up and recast because with a full sinking line, you can't do that. The whole line's below the surface. That's why I don't use an intermediate line. 
So that's the secret to fish and pupa that no one seems to understand. There's other ways to do it. You can put a dropper out there and just let it hang there. But if you move right. and you're using a floating line or even a sink tip in this case, you cause surface disturbance. The reason, Roger, I didn't hook a fish doing this for 20, 30 years because I was slowly retrieving. I'm moving the insect parallel, my imitation of it, moving through the water where the, the natural is sitting there. He's not moving at all, and fish knew the difference. That's why I couldn't catch yeah. him. Now I incorporate that pause between pulls, and here's one final step for you guys to put this into your memory bank. If you fish early in the spring, and there was a lake in Wyoming that I was on last year, and I was casting in tight to shore, and there were not a lot of fish on the shoreline. It was 8, 9 o'clock. I didn't expect them to be, so I was retrieving out. And as I did that, since there were no fish showing on the surface, I didn't use my 7-foot intermediate tip. I was using the full-sinking camo intermediate. When I got, if I'm 40 feet from shore, and it takes 35 to 40 pulls to get the fly back to me before I pick up and recast, halfway back on all my retrieves is where I was hooking fish using that same count and very slow pulls. What does that mean? That means the fish were hanging in three to five feet. All I had to do was look at the distance, figure how long it takes me to get the fly back to me. So in that time frame, that three to five feet from shore, that's the depth these fish were holding. And as soon as I got into the range, you talk about having a good day. I couldn't keep them off. And I found that that works almost every lake I go to now if they happen to be down deeper. So, Roger, that's a little bit about pupa that guys probably haven't experienced but might help them when they see fish working. And such such a, a subtle but yet profound difference. Yes, it is. <laughs> In the presentation. You know? I know. I mean, you're not doing a whole lot difference but having more profound results, that's for sure. Yeah. Let me take a quick break here, Denny. Um, okay. There are some questions about flies that I, I, I want to hit here. Um, sure. So uh, hang tight. We'll be right back. Okay. Enrico Puglisi flies pride themselves with creating unique and one-of-a-kind flies and tying material. Enrico has been experimenting with durable synthetic and natural materials to create flies that catch fish for more than 20 years. His innovative products include brushes, fibers, and components and they have made a major impact on the direction of saltwater fly fishing, and his methods and materials are respected worldwide. Whether you want your flies hand-tied for you or you would like to tie your own, be sure to visit Enrico Puglisi Flies and browse through their online catalog. Visit epflies.com. Again, that's epflies.com, and go there and do a little shopping today. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We're talking with Denny Rickards about strategies and techniques for still waters. If you'd like to ask a question, go to our homepage, fill out that form, send it to us, and we'll try to get to it. We do have tons of questions to go through here. But Denny's hit a lot of these inadvertently um, or purposely. I don't know. He's a pretty smart guy. <laughs> so, but let's, uh, Denny, let's hit a few of these things. Um, there was a couple of questions about hot spots and uh, and UV material in uh, mm -hmm. the seal bugger and other flies. Right. Uh, what's your thoughts on that? Well, Carl uh, in Park City asked this question about, uh, and I'll read it for you. First, I would like to say, well, let's quit that. My question to you is, should I change my patterns of the seal bugger to now include UV material? So the question of UV and to finish his question, 
I don't tie anything. I don't fish anything anymore, Roger, without UV in it. I think it really? makes a difference. Yes, because you got to understand the qualities of what UV. We don't see UV light. Fish do see it. And every living organism, and I get this from the biologists that I talk in fishing game. i got a fish hatchery a mile from where I live, and I spend a lot of time with these guys doing tests down there over these stockfish and stuff. But UV is something that every living organism omits UV light that the trout see, and we can't. So when you put UV in on your flies, if it's a suggestive fly, being a bugger, leech, or minnow imitation, that usually means you're either using hair for the wing or marabou for the wing and tail. Use the UV and don't skimp on it. I use eight to ten strands, uh, sometimes over the tail and over the wing. I don't bury it in the middle of the marabou because I want it seen. So when the light is out, you want the light to reflect off of it. Does it make a difference? All I can tell you is usually when I'm fishing a fly without UV, sometimes doesn't make any difference. Other times, it's all the difference. It's not a great, uh, I wouldn't say that the numbers of fish are necessarily different, but where I see the difference is in the takes. Sometimes I'm getting strikes and not hookups. When I'm using flies with UV, it's almost sure hookup when they hit it. So I would, in answer to his question, yes, I would use UV where you can. Okay. Um, Scott Tumuth in Arvada, Colorado asks, um, do you ever use tandem bugger rigs? No. I no. only fish one fly. And if you use two and you're trolling it, you guys figure this out if you haven't already. Which fly do the fish always take? Usually the one on the end. And mm -hmm. so yeah. I'll give you an experience fishing in Utah on Strawberry Reservoir. This occurred Oh, about 10 years ago, I had a, a fellow call me, and he said, Denny, here's what happened to me today. He says, I was using two flies. They're both your seal buggers. One had UV in it, and one didn't. And the one that had the UV was on the end. So I was fishing two flies, and I said, uh, which one was the better? And he says, well, up until noontime when I went in, I landed 15, and 14 of the 15 took the end fly. Only one took the next one up. He says, after lunch, I reversed them. I put the one with UV, the second one back closest to me, and the end fly had no UV, and I caught another 12. He says, 10 of the 12 was on the second fly. It's mm -hmm. interesting. And that's the one that <laughs> yeah. has the UV. So is he yeah. sold on it? Yes. And I think it does make yeah. a difference. It may be subtle, but let me say one thing uh, about you guys when, when you're putting it in. So many guys, and everybody has their favorite colors. But let me just say this about color. Color is not nearly as important as you think it is. If I'm fishing early in the morning before the sun is up, color's not important. So I learn what the fish focus on when a fly enters their space and they see it. Always number one is silhouette. It has to look like food to them. Two can be size. That could be a factor, especially late in the year when insects get smaller. And third is color. It's not that color isn't important. But I'll say this to you guys, if you are not using burnt orange in marabou or hackle on your buggers uh, and marabou tails, burnt orange, if it's an attractive color, I know that, but you will see if you go on my website, a lot of flies have got burnt orange hackle or marabou. It's because it works. I have yet to fish a lake, Roger, anywhere on this planet that burnt orange did not take fish, and it's usually in a bugger or leech-style fly. So. Just FYI. Seems to me I re remember from your books or our last conversations that purple was a hot color for you as well. 
It is, that's especially dope. early in the morning. But I don't, yeah. I've learned only because I had a client one day. I told him on Upper Klamath we have algae in the water in the summer months. In the summer months, we're only fishing four or five feet down. And he says, what fly should I use? And I took my fly box out, and I said, here's seal buggers. I said, I prefer the black burgundy tails and burgundy hackle on uh, on a blackish body. And he says, God, I'd really like to try that burnt orange one. And I said, but this is the one that works so well. And he says, well, can I try it? And I said, sure. <laughs> After two hours, he had me down nine to one. So I huh. thought, oh, okay, I've learned something from him. And I found out that day burnt orange will work anytime. So color, you guys, is not the key factor, and it depends on where the sun is. After it's above the 10-degree angle, when it comes up in the morning, anything under that, fish don't, they don't spook because they can't distinguish. Once you go deeper than three feet, color is neutralized. Fish are not picking on what colors things are. They're keen on silhouettes. So darker flies, either in algae water or when the sun is not out there, are going to be seen easier than flies of brighter color. But both are going to be seen. So got to remember, a fish uses his lateral line to locate objects in the water. They know where they're at. They know how big they are and how fast they're traveling. They don't have to see them. It just helps with their eyes. So they use that as their first locator. But they can use their, their lateral line to locate anything, and certainly at night, and uh, in the dark of a moon. Scott Nelson in Portland, Washington asks, um, what do you think of balanced leeches? I never fish them. Never fish them, okay. No, I don't. Any, to me, I fish leeches, but they're marabou leeches. I don't think it really makes a difference. It's not the fact that a leech is not an effective pattern. It is, whether it's balanced or not. But got to remember the key, Roger, the key to catching fish in still water is depth. So we talked about fishing a pup up high when fish are working. I'll start my day, and I'll cast out there, and I'll fish the top two feet, and there's no insects showing, and I'm hooking fish. But what's going to happen if it's in the summer months, say June through August, maybe early September? As the water temperature warms on top, it's going to change maybe only one or two degrees. One or two degrees to a trout is like, for us, it's like 10 degrees. So when that water temperature in, increases, it's going to dilute the amount of dissolved oxygen. Not major, but what a fish will do is he'll drop down two, three feet. So maybe you're catching them up on the top two feet from 6 to 8 o'clock in the morning, and by 10 o'clock you're not getting very many strikes. I found out this to be true a lot. And what it leads me to tell the guys is that when you're fishing, and this happens to everybody that's fishing still water, and you guys have made a cast and nothing happens, nothing happens as you get the fly back and you're just ready to pick it up and make another cast and the fish hits you right there at the end of your retrieve, you're no longer pulling parallel at that point. You're pulling your fly up on an angle. Up. And again, yeah. it's the pause between the poles is when the fish takes. But you're talking about a fish that was in the top two feet two hours ago. Now he's dropped down four or five feet. So as your line and fly passes through the zone he's at, all he has to do is open his mouth and take it, and they do. Uh, I'm going to ask this um, next question from Nick in Watermill, New York, uh, because it related to our conversation about the snails in the past, too. Uh -huh. So, um, uh, But let, let me read this. It's, it's rather long, but I think it's, it's something to work off of here. It says, hi, Denny. As a young boy growing up in five uh, 
fly fishing still waters that held some nice sharks, I would spend my summer days throwing large streamers looking for the big bite. It rarely panned out as they inevitably would cruise by without a glance. It wasn't until many years later that I figured out that they really wanted very small 16, 18 beadhead nymphs, chronomids, and scuds almost with abandon. Why would large trout spend so much time eating dozens of very small uh, aquatics instead of one large bait fish? When fishing nearby spring creeks, big streamers rarely ever fail. Why the difference? And um, you kind of enlightened me about the snail thing, too, about um, why they're eating certain things at certain times. So can you kind of elaborate on, on that? Sure. Probably the biggest problem that he had is that when he was fishing streamers on shoreline, the key to fishing a streamer in a lake is where you fish it and when you do it. Got to remember, the small fish that live in lakes live on shoreline edges where their cover is. So they can dart in and out around rocks, uh, weed beds, whatever. Trout nose are there, but they're not going to, unless they're in high pursuit, they aren't going to chase these guys into that kind of cover. They're going to try to get them out into the open. And they will take them. So I have a hunch that what he was doing either was the wrong time or wrong location. Because after that 8, 9 o'clock in the morning time frame, I take a streamer off because I stopped hooking fish. But the first two hours of the day, I just landed 8 or 9 that were all big on minimum limitations. So that's when I think the key, Roger, again, when you start to see fish working the surface, that's when I put the intermediate line away. I get the seven-foot tip line out. I put the big flies away, go to the small stuff, and go out there and fish the top two feet. If the guys out there are in, in to the, well, let's just talk about it. There's four ways to present a fly. You can use a dry fly on top with a floater. You can use an indicator, and you can go down. It's about depth, not distance. You control a fly. You can cast and retrieve it. Only the cast and retrieve portion has more tangents to it that make it more difficult because you've got to consider the retrieve, the, the speed of the retrieve, size of the fly, cut of the fly, where you're fishing at, what angle, all that sort of thing. If you're indicator fishing, it's a matter of putting it down. So maybe if you're fishing bead heads with your cast and retrieving them or you're putting them under an indicator, I don't fish indicators very often. I don't have the patience for it. And I've really never had a time that I had to do it except, and here's the one exception, Indicators are probably the best way to go when water temperatures are below 50, maybe 40 degrees. When they drop below 40, that's cold water, and fish will not come to a troll real well or a cast and retrieve real well, and I don't care what the fly is. They don't do it. So I'll use an indicator and have a very good morning just getting down to the depth that they're at, but it's, I have a hard time putting them next to the bottom. Even in 10 feet of water, I usually will go four or five feet under and not have a problem catching them. But anyway, in answer to his question, minnows, I certainly would uh, keep them in your arsenal and just change where you fish them and when you do it. And if there's fish out there and they're looking for a minnow and that's what they go into shallow water for, you should be successful with it. Yeah, and, and relating back to my uh, question about the snails, uh -huh. uh, you had talked about, I was like, well, why are they eating snails? Uh, you know, or shouldn't they be eating minnows or aquatics or whatever? And you had said. <laughs> you want me to elaborate? Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. The, the reason okay. trout take a snail, first you've got to understand that if, if you're in the winter, say we go from late fall into winter into early spring, snails are always available to fish. Trout always know where the food is. The question is, do they want it? 
And what controls whether they want it or not is water temperature. So when they're out there grubbing, how much energy do you have to spend to go up and bump a weed uh, leaf off of a weed where the snails are attached to and knock them off? Or if they're on the bottom, open your mouth and suck them in. There isn't high value in terms of protein in a snail, but they can get enough to fill their stomachs. And so if you're picking up a fish and you feel something rocky on his bottom, yeah, it could be snails, but what they do is because the other aquatic insects and food sources are not available. If they were, they know where they're at, but they're not out there running around. They're usually in larva form crawling around on the bottom. So a fish has to come in, and since shoreline edges are the first to cool and the first to warm on a given day, they're not going to go in there if that water temperature is cold. One thing that a fish can do, he he can go 100 days without eating anything, but he can't go oh, really? 10 seconds without oxygen. So if the water's cold, you have lower oxygen levels along shoreline edges early, but you'll always find fish close to it because that's where the food is. But if you wonder... If that's the case, why doesn't the fish just take up residency in there? Because he, he's really nervous. He gets spooky when he's in shallow water because he can be seen by the predator. So the number one thing for a trout is survival, not food, survival. And survival has to do with water temperature, has to do with his ability or exposure to predators. That's why they hang deep in the middle of the day when they're inactive, not hunting for food. When they're ready to eat, they're coming to you guys. They're going to go to shoreline edges or close to the surface because aquatic insects stop when they get to the top. So those are the two places when I'm guiding, I make sure that the guys are staying in depths of eight feet or less for the most part and fishing those two places. If you can't yeah. do that, and we haven't even talked about trolling, we need to talk about that too because it's another yeah. effective way of doing it. It's not fly fishing, but it's effective. So. Yeah, we did have a question about uh, trolling. Um trying to find it here but uh yeah it was about you know with your with your kick boat and uh, moving along mm -hmm. the shoreline so you want to address the, the techniques that are effective there yeah when you're trolling guys trolling is is an effective method but what i see a lot of guys doing that i wouldn't do if i were guiding i won't have guys out in the middle of a lake unless that middle where he's at is relatively shallow water 10 feet or less even if it's deeper 12 15 feet if fish are going to be feeding when you're trolling, they're going to be in the top two, three feet. You've got to remember, that's where they go when they want to hunt, top two, three feet. When you troll, relative to how much line you put out and the speed that you're moving, you will almost always keep your fly in the top two, three feet when you troll. A guy that puts all his fly line out, that's a mistake because there's too much stretch in it. And when you set the hook, you're going to miss a lot of strikes because you can't drive that hook in on a troll, troll fly. And here's the one thing you got to remember, guys. Fish do not come up behind your fly and hit it. They may come up behind your fly and follow it. So anybody that's done much trolling knows that when you stop or change the speed you're going or do something different and allow your fly to drop for a minute, bingo, the fish takes. Or when you go to pull it again, they'll take then. That's because they were following, and when you do something different, you're enticing them. You're getting them to react to what you just did. 90% or more of all the fish that I catch and you guys catch when you troll come in from the side where they see your flying profile view. Can't tell you how important that is. That's what you do when you're on a shoreline edge casting in, fish moving parallel. He sees profile view of your fly. 
when you're trolling that come in from the side, how you'll know what I just told you is true. When you hook the fish, look and see where the hook is. You'll find it one corner of the mouth or the other. And that's because they came in from the side. Rare, I mean rare, for them to come up behind the fly and take it. That's not true when you cast and retrieve, though. You might put it right in front of you. He sees it right now, and he'll take it right now. Then it could be in the upper or lower jaw. So anyway, trolling, uh, there isn't a right or wrong fly to do it with. Uh, I usually do it with a bugger, a leech, or a minnow imitation. Trolling minnows is really, really effective if you stay in closer to the shoreline edges. You can use small flies if there's aquatic insects coming off and fish are making rings. Trolling the small fly will work just as effectively, if not more so, than the big ones. So it's knowing when to change and, and what line you use. I would never use a floating line. You can catch fish doing it, but I wouldn't use a floating line when I trolled. It would be an intermediate. You can use whatever the sink rate is on the line that you want to use. They'll all work. Sink tip lines, they all work. Just got to remember the speed you go and how much line you put out. And here's the key what I do with my clients when I'm fishing with them. I want them to be 50 to 60 feet back. No more. No less. Sometimes if you're over weed beds and stuff like that, you have to shorten that. And they'll still take if you're in a kick boat and you're kicking along, going along there. They'll still take on a shorter one. But if you get wind ripple, that's an advantage for you. If the lake is flat and fish are showing, Trolling may be the best way to go because when you cast and retrieve on a flat surface, you're spooking way too many fish, and you'll find that true. You can't go to a shoreline edge because they've retreated from there and gone out to deeper water. So in flat water, trolling, because you're not casting retrieve it, holds the fly at the depth you want it, and I think you'll find that it works regardless. Only downside is water temperature. should be above the 50-degree mark if you want to get somewhat consistent success doing that. A uh, couple questions, one uh, from Mark in uh, Connecticut and also from, got one online here from um, Eric and Chatham. Um, both ask uh, what, what your strategies are for fishing from shore um, when you can't wait deep enough to cast back towards the shoreline. Um, so what are your strategies for if that's your only option to fish from shore? That's, that's pretty tough. Uh, if that's the only thing you can do. <laughs> you don't do. like that option. <laughs> no, I don't. And I won't let anybody that I'm guiding fish from shore. Uh-uh. You can do uh, it. Sure. You, can, you can do it. Probably indicator fishing from shore uh, is acceptable because you're going to be casting out into deeper water. But remember, the fish that's cruising, depending on the time you're there, if you're doing it after 9 o'clock, shoreline fishing can work, but you've got to get enough distance or depth uh, and try, and you've got to keep moving if you're not getting hit. But from shoreline, you're standing where the fish want to come in to eat. And don't think they won't see you. They will. But if you don't have any options, I probably wouldn't be out at first light because if you try to cast parallel, you're going either against the way the fish is cruising, which means you're lining him, if you're putting it out in front of him, pulling it back toward him, or if he's going the other way, it's just uh, you're going to line him either way. But it's just not a good option, so I probably try it early if you want, but I know indicator fishing from shore can be very effective, and that's probably one of the better methods to uh, fish a lake with, in that case, anyway. Other than that, you don't have a lot uh, of options fishing from shore. Yeah, yeah, you're kind of stuck. Um, uh, let's see, I'm just trying to look through this because we've covered so much of this. Um, 
Well, Roger, there's there one thing a... that we haven't talked about that I think guys need to understand about Stillwater okay. behavior, and that's that if you guys have to go deep, for whatever the reason, I rarely have to do it because I find enough fish in the top five, six feet. I don't need to go deep. But if you have to and you're putting a fly down there, if the fish is seeing it, what is it, whether the fish is shallow or deep, that makes the fish react to your offering, whatever that is? Because we haven't even talked about leaders and, and tippets and stuff like that. Got to remember this. A fish is a reactionary creature. I learned this from the biologist that the fish hatcheries, and they, they tell me, he says, no, no, no. They will react to a fly. And what they do, its movement is the key. It's how fast you retrieve it or slow you retrieve it or when you're trolling. Movement that makes the parts of the fly wiggle and breathe is what causes the fish to react. So on my flies, I've already built in the movement for you on the suggestive patterns. It's up to you guys to activate it with your retrieve or if you troll it. If you're where, where the fish are and they see it, you're going to probably get hit. When you're fishing and you don't get strikes, I mentioned it earlier, guys, fish probably weren't there to see your fly. So that's why the fly line is so critical. And for the different forms of presentation, dry fly, indicator, trolling, or cast and retrieve, I use three lines. Floater is for dry fly and indicator. The intermediate, which is your, your one foot and 10 second drop, I fish that down up to six feet. Or I'll fish the intermediate sink tip in the top two feet. Just depends where the fish are at. If they're there and they're seeing my fly, I'm going to get them. Period. All right, that was uh, a fast uh, ninety minutes here that we've got. Well, I'm looking at the time. I don't want to run out of time here trying to answer all this stuff. Yeah, well, we've run out of time. Is what's happened. Uh, but Denny, you've just provided so much information. Um, and I want to encourage everybody to, to go out on our website because, like I said, we did three other interviews with you. And, and you've shared, you know, different things on all those interviews. Mm -hmm. So I encourage everybody to search our archive for Denny Rickards, and you'll see the other three shows we did as well. Um, so check it out. And, uh, and also, you know, Denny's books are a great resource for his flies, if you want to tie his flies these techniques as well so we've got those on his web on our website too and then of course uh, as Denny offered up which I think is an incredible thing for tonight is to contact him personally and ask him these questions because we we didn't get through half of what we were trying to get through tonight but we covered more than than I expected we were going to cover so that was good. Uh, you know <laughs> so we, it's a win-win you know but um, but yeah Denny's offered up so um, you know take him up on this offer to, to share his, his knowledge and uh, uh, but hang with me a, a little bit longer Denny because we're going to sure. give away that those flies here and I'm going to pose a question and, and okay. I'm going to have you make sure I get the right answer so um, uh, hang tight with me. Uh, we're also going to be giving away uh, one year membership to Fly Fishers International and a, and a one year subscription to Fly Fishing and Tying Journals so uh, hang tight we'll do that in just a sec. Reeling and Healing Midwest is a nonprofit organization that champions the fly fishing retreats for women surviving and battling all types of cancer. Their mission is to introduce women to the healing powers of the sport of fly fishing and provide a one-of-a-kind experience on and off the water. This is accomplished through the elements of fly fishing, positive camaraderie, peer coaching, and a nature and support network, which in turn renews the spirit and hope of each participant. Reeling and Healing Midwest is in need of trout 
supplies, waders, leaders, fishing equipment, and other items. To view their current wish list and to learn how you can help support their retreats, go to fishon.org. Again, fishon.org, or call them at 616-855-4017. 616-855-4017. And just a quick reminder to everyone, before you leave our website tonight, please take a minute and give us your feedback about the show. You can find a link on our homepage in the section under tonight's show that says, what did you think of the show? Just click on that link and leave us your comments. We'd really appreciate it. And now it's time to give away our prizes. And um, let me uh, fire up my database here. And uh, da, 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 da. here we go. And come on, come on here. So the first thing we're going to give away is a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International. And uh, it's a great organization to support. So if you don't win tonight, please uh, go there and check them out and join flyfishersinternational.org, flyfishersinternational.org. So let's see. Uh, looks like we have uh, Chris Simons in Utah. Chris Simons in Utah. and Or is it Simmons? Um, so, Chris, congratulations. I've got your email address here. I will contact you after the show and uh, set you up to, with that membership. So uh, thanks for listening, and congratulations. Um, the second thing we're giving away is a one-year membership to Fly Fishing in Time Journal, courtesy of Amato Books. Uh, and you can check Amato Books out at amatobooks.com. They've got a lot of great books as well as periodicals uh, that will help you with your fly fishing as well. So check them out, and let's see if we got a winner for that. And uh, looks like, hold on here. And database is kind of slow here, chugging along. Uh, Victor Hahn in Colorado. So, Victor, congratulations. And uh, we'll set you up with a subscription as well. And now... Um, we're going to give away Denny's um, dozen of his favorite flies for still water here. So let me clear my queue here. Now you can answer um, this question on the home page, the same place that you, you ask questions during the show. Fill out that form, your name, uh, location, and um, the first one that gets this right. Uh, will win Denny's flies. So the question is, uh, Denny said the, the first and most important thing about the flies he fishes is what? What is it? I hope that's clear enough. But he listed three different things in order of importance. What was the first thing? Uh, first answer in is UV material. Nope, that's not what I was looking for. Right? Denny, we're looking for something else there. Yes, we are. Yes, we are. So we're still waiting. Sometimes it... Uh, depth. No, we're talking about the fly. Talking about the fly. 
What's in post? And uh, ah, I think this might be it. Uh, and what I was looking for was silhouette. Was that it, Denny? That's it. That's number one. Joyce Deming in Golden, Colorado. You just got yourself a dozen flies from uh, Denny Rickards. So uh, congratulations, and thanks for paying attention and playing along here. So um, yeah. I, but, you know, there's a lot of answers coming in here, Denny. I was talking about the fly, but uh, a lot of the answers were about depth. So people well, were paying attention about thing. that depth. Yeah, yeah, as far as where the fly is. But the look of the fly is the silhouette. So congratulations, uh, Joyce. Um, Joyce, send me your uh, mailing address uh, in the same spot that you just answered the question. And uh, I've got your, your name and your email address. I'll pass that on to Denny, and then he can get those flies out to you. So thanks, everybody, for um, listening and paying attention tonight. I'm sure you learned a ton, because I always do and did tonight. And uh, Denny, really appreciate you spending your time again with us. I always enjoy it, and I always learn things. So thank you so much. Well, thank you for the opportunity of sharing with everybody. Uh, I just hope it was helpful for everybody. And again, if they need help and we didn't get to their question, I thoroughly encourage them to give me a call. However, Roger, there's one thing they need to know. If the Lakers, Dodgers, or Rams are playing, I'm not answering. I'll call them when the game's over. Okay, fair enough, fair enough. <laughs> okay, hopefully you all have found the podcast archive on our website. If you haven't, just look for the link at the top line of our menu. In that archive, you'll find over 325 shows that we've done. Search by keyword, like Denny Rickard, Stillwater, and you'll find all of Denny's shows and many other things that you can learn about fly fishing amongst those shows in the archives. So check it out. I'm sure you'll be impressed. Uh, our next broadcast will be on January 20th, 7 p.m. Mountain, 9 p.m. Eastern Time. And on that show, I'm going to interview Gil McKean, and our topic for the show will be the Skeena River Steelhead Dreams. Gil has been guiding on the world-famous Skeena River for more than 25 years. He's guided a client to a massive steelhead estimated at 34 pounds and has personally landed many in the 30-pound range. Join us to learn from Gil about his incredible fishery and, of course, how to land that steelhead of a lifetime. I'd like to thank Fly Fishers International, Amato Books, Douglas Outdoors, Charlie Leslie Fly Fishing, Enrico, and Enrico Puglisi Flies for sponsoring our show tonight. And don't forget to visit our website at askaboutflyfishing.com and make sure you're signed up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. Thanks for listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We hope you enjoyed the show. That's it. Good night, everyone, and good fishing. Whoop.